Shalom, wonderful friends. It's so nice to see you. Thank you so much for being here today for um, our 40 great philosophers and what they mean for Judaism and far beyond what they mean for our lives. And I am very excited to jump into session two with the Buddha, with the Buddha. Um, there is way too much to say about the Buddha um, and what emerges from, from, from him um, in one session, but we will do our best attempt. But before that, let's jump into a poll question, get a sense of what you're thinking already. On Buddhism, Buddhism and Judaism strike me as opposites. Buddhism and Judaism strike me as having the same goals. Buddhism and Judaism are very separate systems, but could enhance one another. Or I'm a Jubu. <laughs> ah, wow. 10% say Buddhism and Judaism strike me as opposites. Nobody said they're a Jubu, and nobody said Buddhism and Judaism strike them as having the same goals. But 90% say Buddhism and Judaism are very separate systems that could enhance each other. Very interesting. Okay, here we go, friends. How should we address the problem of human suffering? Does it demand action in the world or first an adjustment of the mind? Can a person be Jewish and Buddhist at the same time? What is the role that earthly pleasures such as wine, sex, and food should play in our lives? These are all, of course, discussions that come up when we examine the common ground and the differences between traditional Judaism and the philosophy of the Buddha. We should perhaps begin by saying that Buddha is not a name, but a title, meaning awakened, one who attains Bodhi, who has reached enlightenment. It's believed that many people have been Buddhas, such as the Dalai Lama today. The Buddha, however, refers to Siddhartha Gautama, who lived as an ascetic religious teacher in India, although he was born in Nepal, approximately 2,500 years ago, only to be called the Buddha centuries after his death. Tradition says that the Buddha was born into royalty in Nepal, where he lived an extremely privileged life, not leaving his palace. When he was 29 years old, it is said, he wandered out of the palace and was stunned to find out about the existence of violence, illness, and death. That's pretty stunning. 29 years, completely sheltered. Choosing to embark on an intellectual life to find out what to make of these challenges in the world, he meditated on how, when a lawn is mown, insects living in it are certainly killed. He'd built on this sense of compassion for the world he discovered until he reached an enlightened state. A Buddha is someone who can now see the true reality of the world and is completely removed from destructive internal forces like ignorance, hate, and even desire itself. This enlightenment or nirvana led him to teach the Four Noble Truths, all of which center around the theme of suffering. In the words of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, these truths are, there is suffering, there is the origination of suffering, 
there is the cessation of suffering. And there is a path to the cessation of suffering. These four truths are predicated on the idea that we perpetually find ourselves attached to and desiring things that are fundamentally impermanent. Until we recognize that neither ourselves nor the world truly exist in the way that our egos perceive them, we are trapped to pursue that which is illusory. Buddhism offers a host of practices and ways of thinking that are intended to liberate us from attachments in order to see reality as it truly is. This path, whose end goal is the cessation of suffering, is called the Noble Eightfold Path, which is described by Encyclopedia Britannica entailing correct view, correct intention, correct speech, correct action, correct livelihood, correct effort, correct mindfulness, and correct concentration. The Buddha struggled with whether or not to teach the Dharma to others. He believed most are too far removed from such noble truths for these spiritual practices to have any real value. One can't live half with anger, jealousy, and greed, and then partially engage spiritual bliss. It's all or nothing. But ultimately, the Buddha embraced many monks and then sent them out to teach and ordain many more monks so they could grow and transform the world as they saw fit. Jews have long been attracted to Buddhism, of course, and there are many reasons for this. For American Jews who saw Jewish life as limited to stale synagogue rituals, Buddhism provided a perceived series of practices that could make spirituality more real and accessible to the individual while leaving some cultural and communal baggage behind. Buddhism's truths can also be seen as orienting one towards a, universal, a universalist orientation, something that was important for American Jews who found Judaism to be too parochial. That being said, it's easy to see how Buddhism's values can find similar expression in Judaism, albeit with the Buddha's philosophy paying particular attention to the discipline of the mind. It makes sense then that those disillusioned by mainstream Judaism often dabble in Buddhism to find heft in areas that see Judaism as lacking. From this, we have the character caricature of the Jubu, the Jewish Buddhist. Actually, just pausing for a little joke, um, you know, um, it's actually, I saw a study recently that said 40% of American Buddhist teachers are Jews. 40%. Um, so uh, uh, that part's not the joke. That, that, that's the background to the joke. That there's a woman who travels around the world to go meet a guru. She travels around the world and she gets to the mountain, the base of the mountain, and she climbs for weeks to get to the top of this mountain. And she gets to the top and she meets the guru's assistant. And the guru's assistant says to her, you now need to go to the, to the ponder room so that you can now think of the three words you can ask the guru. Oh, just three words. She says, she says, no, no, I, I'm very clear on what I want to say. You know, I've thought about it for a long time. So, uh, but the assistant says, you only get three words. You should probably think a little more about what three words you want to say. She says, no, no, I thought about it for a long time. I know exactly what I want to say. The assistant says, okay. So she ascends higher on the mountain and she gets to the highest point and she sees the guru sitting in the guru garb up on the top of the mountain meditating. And she points at the guru and she says, Chaim, come home. 
right? In fact, there are a lot of Jews out there who um, are, you know, hiding, so to speak. I have gone into hiding who have, who have uh, completely left the faith in order to immerse in Buddhism for some of the reasons w- w- that we just said. So although there is, of course, great diversity of beliefs within Buddhism, the Buddha is generally not seen as a god or prophet. Although um, there are some scholars who suggest that while earliest Buddha, Buddhist texts do not suggest the Buddha was omniscient, how some later texts do try to demonstrate that he was omniscient. He's a person of reason rather than revelation. In that respect, one might argue that Buddhism is more of a philosophy or a way of life than a religion, a concept largely understood through the dominant lens of Christianity and Islam, right? Christianity and Islam determined Buddhism was a religion in many ways. Many Eastern traditions, such as Taoism, Buddhism, and Confucianism, don't fit well either inside or outside the purview of what we might call a religion in the Western world. I think that if we pay close attention to the Buddha's ideas, we'll see that many aspects of Buddhism are compatible with Judaism, provided that a Jew has an understanding of who they are and the Jewish community they are indispensably a part of. First of all, similar to the Jewish sages, the Buddha was concerned with living the right life and the cultivation of virtue that living a good life requires. He was deeply troubled by suffering, much like Judaism is. Like those in Judaism, he knew that sensual pleasure is not the purpose of existence, right? Just to live as a hedon. He rejected both asceticism and its most extreme form and gluttony in favor of a middle way. His goal was then to use this middle way as a pathway toward people's enlightenment. Furthermore, the Buddha wanted people to reduce their suffering, which in his philosophy comes from attachments. One can see both of these ideas clearly expressed by Maimonides, the Rambam, whose emphasis on the golden mean issues embracing extremes from a proper, um, for a proper balance in one's life instead. This applies both to character attributes and how one lives one's life. In the Guide for the Perplexed, Maimonides, like the Buddha, specifically highlights the dangers of material attachments and the suffering that it can bring about. Here's what Maimonides writes in the Guide for the Perplexed. The soul becomes familiarized with and accustomed to unnecessary things and consequently acquires the habit of desiring things that are unnecessary. And this desire is something infinite. If, for instance, your desire is directed to having silver plate, it would be better if it were gold. In most cases, such a man exposes himself to great dangers, such as a rise in sea voyages and the service of kings, his aim therein being to obtain these unnecessary luxuries. It is possible for one to spend their life pursuing more luxuries, right? I just have need more vacations and bigger homes and more cars and nicer clothes, and we can pursue all our time as consumers, as our primary identity. And that will lead to suffering, Maimonides suggests, similar to the Buddha. Because our desire for material objects knows no bounds, it never quite feels we have enough. For Maimonides, it is the risks we take to pursue our desires that so often serve as the source of our pain. Like Buddha, Maimonides felt we must do our best to release ourselves from attachments so that we can reduce our suffering. The Buddha, however, took it a step further and emphasized 
that we can not only reduce our suffering, but eliminate it entirely. We must learn to let go of our selfishness and our very sense of self, the ego that is the cause of it. The Buddha's middle way, however, is less materialistic than the Jewish one. In Judaism, things like sex, food, money are generally viewed as good. We must, we just must learn to take breaks from them, knowing that they're not everything and need to be channeled towards, towards holy purposes. In Judaism, the pleasures of the world and attachments within this world are real and they're mostly good. While for the Buddha, they are necessarily only to keep suffering to a minimum. Whereas Buddhism tends to see desire as the root of suffering, Judaism tries to find some place for desire. It is, taught, it is taught in Tractate Yoma of the Talmud that in the time of the prophet Zechariah, the evil inclination for idol worship emerged from the Holy of Holies in the temple, symbolized by a fiery lion cub. The people then captured it and put it in a lead container, freeing themselves from the inclination toward idolatry. Then they captured the inclination towards sexual sexual. Uh, towards sexuality in general. But Zechariah, the Talmud says, said to them, see and understand that if you kill this inclination, the world will be destroyed because as a result, there will also no longer be any desire to procreate. The legend continues. They followed his warning and instead of killing the evil inclination, they imprisoned, they imprisoned it for three days. At that time, people searched for a fresh egg throughout all of Eretz Israel and could not find one. Since the inclination to reproduce was quashed, the chickens stopped laying eggs. They said, what should we do? If we kill it, the world will be destroyed. If we pray for half, that only half its power will be annulled. Nothing will be achieved because heaven does not grant half gifts, only whole gifts. What did they do? They gouged out its eyes, effectively limiting its power and set it free. This story teaches that we can't kill the sex drive or there will be no procreation. For the rabbis, the Yetzirahara, this kind of self-filled inclination is necessary for the world to function. Judaism wants to alleviate business, excuse me, alleviate attachments such as the desire, such as relationships for the desire for food and drink rather than break them. We can even use these pleasures as ways of connecting to God. However, much like in Buddhism, the last thing we want to do is mistake these things for the purpose of life. And so too, it's, it says over there in the Midrash, the rabbis teach that they saw greed. And so they wanted to kill this inclination for greed. But what they found was there were no more businesses. There was no more production. And that also killed the ability for society to function. So they said, we, all, we need a little bit of selfishness in the world so that people can seek profit, sometimes even a lot of profit, because that also will make the world go round. Again, this is contrasted to a notion of killing desire, killing sexual desire, killing desire for profits or for, or for, or for, for other needs. Um, another similarity between Judaism and Buddhism is that both want a perfected world without hardships. The Buddha's model, however, is nirvana, the cessation of the inner struggle. In Judaism, the desire for redemption is not just directed inwardly, but outwardly as well. Some of the most inspiring words of the prophets are the vision of world peace, as described in Isaiah, 
where it says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and a babe shall play over a viper's hole. Continuing in Isaiah, God will judge among the nations and arbitrate for the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation. No, they shall never again know war. In this approach, it appears that not only has there been an inner transformation of human beings, but it has resulted in a dramatic improvement of the broader physical world. The personal transformation alone is not sufficient in the Jewish perspective. It must become global. Both Judaism and Buddhism care about reducing suffering, and both have a vision of what, a, of what that will look like. For Judaism, it's the Messianic era, and for Buddhism, it's Nirvana. However, the pathways of each are not the same. For Judaism, ending suffering requires us to go out into the world and dedicate our efforts towards healing the sick and helping the poor. It tends to be focused on external action rather than a change in mindset, though there's a place for that too, of course. We don't deny the objective reality as not being real, and we don't claim that the ego or the self is merely illusory. Yes, the Hasidic tradition embraces bitol yesh, abandonment or negation of the self, but it is not meant to be a permanent state of being. Rather, it lives in tension with the overarching Jewish tradition of self-preservation. The simultaneous holding of both of these values is reflected back in one of the most famous quotes of Hillel the Elder. If I am not for me, who will be for me? And when I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? The goals of life on earth in both traditions are about ending suffering. But for the Buddha, it's about the personal path toward abandoning the ego. While Judaism aspires to a, a global reformation on a societal level and even on a religious level, that's communal. But yes, I think it's true that the Buddha's teachings can enrich a person's life and a Jew's life, particularly by building their inner strength and character that can translate Jewishly into how we show compassion in our actions towards others. In an interview, in an interview for Valley Beit Midrash, the modern Orthodox rabbi, David Almuk, who has deeply studied Buddhism and practiced Buddhism intensive, intensively, told me, and you can find the full interview online if you want to Google, Google him. I don't believe I understood tefillah, prayer, until I had a meditation practice where I regularly invoked very definitive forms of kavanah, intention. But also specific mitzvot, commandments, specific deeds, like how to do tzedakah, um, being, being a charitable person, how to give to others, to somebody in need while recognizing that their needs and your needs that there's no difference in dignity. Their needs are as important to me as my needs are to me, and that their person is equal to my own. There were very specific practices in Buddhism that informed me, having an ability to perform these mitzvot with kavanah, that I didn't learn when I was just in a Jewish setting. I may have been taught it, but I wasn't ready to hear it. So here he, he expresses how engaging in his Buddhist practice enabled him to go deeper in his own Jewish practice. I suspect that might be true for practitioners of um, uh, uh, practitioners of Christianity or Islam or of other faith traditions as well. I also asked Rabbi Almug for one teaching of for one teaching of Buddhism that can be the most help to Jews. 
He said it was a mental training practice called lojong. By reflecting closely on our actions, Rabbi Almug explained, we can learn to develop empathy for all people, including our enemies. Here is a Torah commandment that it says in Exodus, when you see the, the donkey of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it. Um, Almug explained that Lo Zheng trains a person to, when disgruntled by an enemy, ask themselves questions such as, what do I gain from my experiences with this person? How is this person teaching me to be more patient? How is this person teaching me to confront my hatred? How is this person making me realize that I'm selfish? How am I going to act justly, even if this person really is doing something that is unjust or is provoking anger? Those steps, Rabbi Almug said, help me keep the mitzvah of keeping my enemy's beast of burden better. More general is the question of whether the Buddha's primary purpose to end suffering is compatible with Judaism. A contemporary renewal-affiliated rabbi in New York City, Rabbi David Ingber, would say it absolutely is. In a dialogue with Buddhist monks and the professor Lobsung Tenzin Negi of the Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics, Ingber said, I like to say, had it not been for the Buddha, I wouldn't be Jewish. Had it not been for the Buddha, I would not have known that Judaism could have been not just an identity, not just a culture, and not just something that you did a couple times a year, but it could be a full practice. That Judaism offered a way into what the Buddha called nirvana, or the cessation of the extinguishing of the crazy mind, the fire mind, the mind that is always on fire. So, friends, to conclude here, can a Jew be good? Can a Jew be a good Jew? I would say so. And I would say for all of us, we should not be afraid of the Buddha. He's not a god, he's not a threat, and his aims were noble. We can all be inspired by him, even those of us who don't dive into the deep waters of Buddhism. So here I wanna just conclude by giving a few slightly oversimplistic, but largely true summations of some of the key differences. For number one, Judaism, what is, at, what is central is action. Judaism is a tradition of action. Almost all of our 613 biblical mitzvot are actions. Buddhism is primarily about the mind, not about the world of actions. Number two, Buddhism is atheistic. It is an atheistic tradition, whereas um, it is accepting the emptiness of reality. Judaism is theistic. There's a, a deep fullness to reality. Judaism is passion-driven. It embraces the fullness of emotional experience. Buddhism is largely stoic. It wants a detachment from emotions. The, our passion should not um, uh, fill us and overwhelm us with joy or with sorrow or with desire, right? There's an emptiness. Buddhism rejects reality as we know it. Judaism sees a deeper reality than what we know, but affirms the surface reality as not just an illusion, but another reality with multiple layers of truth connected to it. Okay, friends, so looking towards next week, um, I, you know, even though we're looking at Western thought largely um, for many reasons, um, 
we did want to give a nod to the East, and that's why we looked at, at Confucius and we looked at the Buddha. And those two, to be sure, um, are the most prominent two who have influenced the West in terms of their ideas uh, emerging, uh, emerging from the East, in my view. Um, and now we're going to move to the Greeks, which are roughly the same time period, about 2,500 years ago. And the way to remember the order is go to the spa. We're going to go to the spa. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, S-P-A, right? So in case you forget the order, we're going to go to the spa together. Yes, it might not feel as good as uh, going to the Schwitz, <laughs> uh, you know, getting into the hot tub or getting a massage, whatever the case is, um, after a good 18 holes or whatever, you know, you like to do before. Um, but um, but we're going to go to the spa and look at how the Greeks influenced um, our world and our reality. And the Greeks deeply influenced all of monotheism and Western thought, Judaism and Christianity, of course, and of course, even the early foundations of democracy and how we think about government and and, and, and our construction of society at large. And so um, we will continue to inter, intertwine spiritual ideas and intellectual ideas, historical ones. As always, I hope you will uh, find meaning um, how this will apply to your personal life. You'll push back when you, you know, it, you know if and when you disagree with any of the conceptualizations and we will continue to be in dialogue with one another. So um, it's also great that we're going to start that right before Pesach, which starts next week, as we yeah. uh, take take a time machine through time. Um, Pesach, in many ways, is a time machine throughout through through the past and to the future, thinking of the um, about what it's like to to be a slave leaving, as the Seder wants us to imagine, and also thinking about future liberation in the world and how we kind of go on that, and as we're going on a time machine as well throughout history thinking about ourselves in relationship to these ideas. Have a blessed day, everybody.